Today's episode is sponsored by Beam. Get ready for the ultimate cozy winter night in, brought to you by Beam. Beam is a functional wellness brand that makes CBD products to help you pursue your better and push the boundaries of what's possible. For a limited time only, Beam's best-selling sleep product, Dream Powder Hot Cocoa, now comes in delicious white chocolate peppermint. Swirls of peppermint mixed in with creamy white chocolate for a guilt-free hot cocoa of your holiday dreams. It's the perfect winter wind down for those cold, snowy nights. It's triple lab tested and contains the ultimate sleep promoting ingredients, nano CBD, reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, and melatonin, plus no added sugar or artificial sweeteners. Curl up with a cup of white chocolate peppermint dream right before bedtime and you will get your best sleep ever. I have struggled with sleep for a very long time, and let me tell you that Beam's Dream Powder has helped me relax my busy mind and let me get some of the best night's sleep I have had in a very long time. White Chocolate Peppermint Dream Powder only lasts for a limited time, so get it while it's hot. Great news. If you subscribe now, you can also take advantage of Beam's best sale of the year for Black Friday and Cyber Monday. You'll get 40% off the first three months of a Peppermint Dream subscription, plus a free mug and frother, or 20% off a one-time purchase. Again, this is Beam's biggest offer of the year, and just like its new flavor, it won't last long. Head over to beamorganics.com slash mcom. That's B-E-A-M organics.com slash M-C-O-M for 40% off the first three months of a Peppermint Dream subscription plus free mug and frother or 20% off the one-time purchase. Pause or cancel anytime. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder... Today's story is a rough one. While it can be argued that all of these stories are horrific, this one, in my opinion, takes the cake. On November 26th, 1986, a man abducted his first victim and, at the end of his hideous crimes, became the inspiration for a movie serial killer that haunts the memories of many individuals. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Gary Heidnick was born on November 22, 1943, in Cleveland, Ohio, to parents Michael and Ellen, who divorced when Gary was still a toddler. Raised by his mother for about four years, Gary and his brother Terry were soon sent off to live with his father and his new wife, a home where Gary would later claim he suffered from emotional abuse at the hands of his father. A chronic bedwetter, Michael would force his son to hang his stained sheets out of the window for all of the neighborhood to see. And school wasn't too much better. A loner who rarely talked to his peers, Gary was made fun of for his oddly shaped head, the product of a fall from a tree, and would refuse to make eye contact when some of the more well-meaning students tried to talk to him. Despite this, Gary excelled academically and tested with an IQ of 148. At his father's insistence, Gary enrolled in the since-defunct Staunton Military Academy at the age of 14, but left before graduation, attempted to finish out his education at a public school, but officially dropped out at 17 and joined the U.S. Army. Serving with the Army for about 13 months, Gary showed some real promise when going through the basic training, but for some reason was rejected from all of the specialist positions that he applied for. 
He was eventually sent to San Antonio, Texas to train as a medic. And shortly after, was transferred to West Germany, where he would work with the 46th Army Surgical Hospital while obtaining his GED. Things seemed to be going really well for Gary for the first time in his young life. Unfortunately, that wouldn't last. In August of 1962, Gary started to complain about some severe headaches, dizziness, blurred vision, and nausea. Sent off to a specialist, he was soon diagnosed with gastroenteritis, as well as the beginning stages of an unnamed mental illness for which he was prescribed medication. Less than 20 months later, he was transferred to a hospital in Philadelphia where he was officially diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder and honorably discharged from the military. Gary would later tell friends that the army gave him LSD while serving in Germany and that the drug triggered the nervous breakdown that would lead to his eventual discharge. He would also spend the next two decades in and out of various psychiatric hospitals and attempt suicide on 13 separate occasions. Shortly after he left the military, Gary became a licensed practical nurse and enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania. He dropped out after one semester and started working at a Veterans Administration Hospital, where he was fired for poor attendance and rude behavior towards his patients. In 1970, his mother Ellen, after a cancer diagnosis and living with the side effects of her alcoholism, took her own life by drinking mucuric acid, and his brother spent time in and out of institutions for his own suicide attempts. In October of 1971, Gary incorporated a church he called the United Church of the Ministers of God, which, at the time, had about five members. Four years later, he opened up an account under the church's name, and over the course of a few years, and with the helps of the checks he was getting from the Army and Social Security, accrued about $500,000, over a million in today's money. With that money, he started making investments into companies like Playboy. This would become very important later in this story. Now, while Gary was making money off of a church that may or may not have been legitimate, he was also getting himself into some trouble both legally and personally. In 1976, he was charged with aggravated assault and carrying an unlicensed weapon after shooting a tenant at the house he offered for rent, grazing the man's face. It was also around this time that he started dating a woman named Anjanette Davidson, who also suffered from mental illness, and together they had a daughter in 1978 who was immediately placed into foster care. Just after the birth of his daughter, Gary, for whatever reason, decided to sign out Alberta, Anjanette's sister, from the mental institution that she was residing in and locked her in the storage room inside of his basement. After she was found and returned to the institution, they found out that she had been raped, sodomized, and contracted gonorrhea during her time in captivity with her sister's boyfriend. He was arrested and charged with kidnapping, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and interfering with the custody of a committed person. For all of this, he spent three years in a mental institution and was released in April of 1983, only to find out that Anjanette had understandably left him. Feeling as though society owed him a wife and family, Gary ordered a mail-order bride from the Philippines, hoping she would be a subservient wife who doted upon him. Betty showed up in September of 1985, and after marrying that October, the marriage quickly dissolved after she found him in bed with another woman. According to her testimony, she was beaten, 
raped, and forced to have sex with other women over the course of their short marriage. She had enough and, with the help of her community, left Gary in January of 1986. He was arrested yet again and charged with assault, indecent assault, spousal rape, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. A year later, Gary found out that Betty had his child after their separation when he was contacted to pay child support. He had another baby with a woman named Gail Linkow, but like his first child, the boy was placed in foster care shortly after his birth. From the outside looking in, Gary's life had all the makings of a serial killer. Ticking almost all of the boxes, it was only a matter of time before he drifted into something much more dangerous than what he had already been charged with. But to those who knew him and knew the mask he liked to put on for the public, Gary was an eccentric oddball who, while strange, didn't seem to really raise any red flags. On November 25th, 1986, the same year Betty left him, Gary kidnapped a woman named Josefina Rivera off the corner of 3rd and Gerard. According to her testimony, a man in a Coupe de Ville pulled up and started discussing services with her. They agreed on a price, and he drove her to his home on Marshall Street, giving her his real full name. When they went upstairs, he gave her the cash, they undressed, and had sex in his bedroom. Everything seemed to be going routinely until Josefina got up and started to redress. That's when Gary came up behind her, grabbed her neck, and squeezed it until she was unconscious. When she awoke, she was in his bed again with handcuffs on one of her wrists. He dragged her down to the basement where the 25-year-old noticed a large hole in the floor with bags of dirt stacked into the corner. He then shackled her legs, superglued the nuts so she couldn't unscrew them, and told her he was going to impregnate her and start a family that he would raise. He pushed her into the hole, put a board over top of it, and pushed it down so she could not breathe. After letting out a scream, Gary pulled her back out of the hole and began beating her with a stick. When he was finished, she was placed back into the hole, where she stayed for a long period of time, time that she had no way of counting. A few days later, she heard his voice once again, accompanied by that of a terrified female. By January of 1987, Gary had added four other women into the pit in his North Philadelphia basement. All of his captives were young black women who were forced to endure the absolute unthinkable. The next to be taken into the basement was 24-year-old Sandra Lindsay, an intellectually disabled woman who told her family prior to her disappearance that a bishop from a church, a man named Gary, was going to take her and her friends to great adventure. A man who bought them dinner, gained their trust, and made them feel safe and loved. The day after Thanksgiving, Sandy went to the store to get some medication and, according to her sister Tracy, never made it back home. According to Josefina, Gary claimed he knew Sandy for about four years before her abduction and that she offered to have his baby, but kept backing out. So into the hole she went. The following Monday, Sandy's mother called the police to report her daughter missing and spoke to a detective named Julius Armstrong, who, to put it mildly, did not take her disappearance seriously. So they did some investigating on their own, looking for a friend of Sandy's named Tony, who, after they waited for him at the McDonald's they frequented, handed over the phone number of this Bishop Gary. They called, he answered, and when they asked where Sandy was, he responded that she wasn't with him and hung up. 
They went to his house and no one was there. But when speaking to a neighbor and showing her photo, they claimed to see Sandy at Gary's house recently. Detective Armstrong went to Gary's home, knocked, got no answer, and just left a message for someone to contact them with information. Around this time, Josefina said that Gary came down one day with a box of Christmas cards that he forced Sandy to write and address to her mother. She carefully wrote down, Dear Mom, I am all right. Don't worry. Love, Sandy. Placed a $20 bill inside and sealed it up. Gary, who wore gloves the entire time, then drove the car to New York to mail it off. Unconvinced this was actually from Sandy, Tracy and her mother went back to Detective Armstrong and asked if he could send it to a handwriting analyst. He claimed this card was enough to prove that she was alive and well and ended the investigation. A few days before Christmas, Gary brought home 19-year-old Lisa Thomas and added her to his growing collection of hostages. Lisa would later tell investigators that Gary took her out to eat at a local TGI Friday's and then to a Sears to do a little shopping. After that, he brought her to his house, gave her a beer, and they spent the evening watching a movie, and after having consensual sex. When they finished, he strangled her, handcuffed her, and took her into the basement. She, like the others, was fitted with leg shackles that were just wide enough for them to have sexual intercourse. These women, who were fed on a diet of Pop-Tarts, rice, hot dogs, and later cat and dog food were forced to have sex with Gary Heidnick daily every other day when a new girl would arrive, keeping them alive just enough to do whatever he demanded of them. The next girl to be added to the basement came on January 2nd, 1987. Her name was Deborah Dudley, and she was just 23 years old when she was shackled like the rest of the women. But unlike the others, Debbie refused to cooperate with her captor screaming constantly despite being beaten with a stick that had nails protruding from the end. A few weeks later, on January 18, 1987, Gary brought 18-year-old Jacqueline Askins downstairs after they had spent about 45 minutes playing video games in his home. According to a later interview, Jacqueline would say that Gary frequently covered their mouths with duct tape and would stab them in the ears with a screwdriver. After Jacqueline, who went by the alias of Donna, arrived in the hole, Gary started forcing the girls to beat up one another as a source of entertainment. Josefina, who spent her birthday in captivity, would later say that Gary treated them as if they were in the military. And each girl, desperate to be the one in charge, would brutally beat up her fellow captives for a chance to be treated even just a tiny bit better than the others. Josefina, who was in pure survival mode, seemed to work her way up the chain of command and soon became the most trusted of Gary's girls. She was even allowed to go on some errands with him outside of the house and on one occasion was left at a gas station while Gary went with a friend to pick up some things to build a fence around his house. She stood there dutifully until he came back to collect her. Then in February, Sandy made a mistake that would end up costing her her life. According to Lisa, Gary instructed her to throw all of her violence in Sandy's direction because she was eating her allotment of bread a little too slowly, something she was known to do due to a problem with her jaw and mouth. She was then hung on a loop by her wrists where she was forced to stand for three days. When she slumped forward and fell asleep or passed out, her oxygen line was cut off and Sandra Lindsay died on February 7th 
1987. She became an example to the women of what would happen if they stepped out of line. Gary carried her body upstairs, visibly upset, and a minute or two later, the girls heard the sound of an electric saw. Her arms and legs were placed in a freezer and labeled dog food, while her ribs were cooked down and her head was boiled. Police showed up that day after receiving several complaints about the smell, and after Gary insisted he was cooking a roast that had burned, they left the property having no clue what horrors lay just below their feet. According to several sources, what remained of Sandra was mixed up and fed to the other women. His defense attorney claims this is a work of fiction. With the smell of her decomposed and cooked remains still in the air, Gary came back downstairs and raped each of the girls. Despite seeing what happened when you disobeyed Gary Heidnick, Debbie wasn't ready to comply with her captor. So he dragged her upstairs and, when asked later what happened, she claimed he showed her Sandy's head in a pot as well as the rest of her body and threatened that she would be next. On March 18, 1987, Gary left for the day and, when he came back, heard the girls making too much noise. So he instructed his favorite girl, Josefina, to hook up the hose and fill the hole with water. While the water rose, Gary grabbed an electrical extension cord and started to touch their chains with the live wire. Each let out a blood-curdling scream and begged him to stop. He said he would if they would just be quiet, but Debbie refused. He then handed the wire to Josefina and instructed her to hold it to just Debbie's chains. She did so, and after a few moments, Debbie finally grew silent. After getting rid of her body, Gary forced Josefina to write a letter stating, Gary Heidnick and Josefina Rivera electrocuted Deborah Dudley in the basement of 3520 North Marshall Street and signed the bottom with Jacqueline as a witness. That way, if they were ever presented the opportunity to escape, he would try and prove that they were just as guilty as he was. In need of a new girl, Gary, with Josefina by his side, brought home 25-year-old Agnes Adams on March 23, 1987. He told Josefina that if she helped him pick up a new girl, he would let her contact her family. After he and Agnes finished having sex, he took her down to the basement and shackled her. Immediately after, he asked Josefina if there was another girl that he could take. She told him that she had proven herself as trustworthy and wanted to go get the girl on her own. She told him to wait at the gas station near where he picked her up all those months ago and said she had the perfect girl who lived just a block away. She walked calmly away from her captor and, when out of sight, ran as fast as she could to her old home. When she got there, her boyfriend opened the door and she quickly relayed the entire ordeal that she had been suffering. He didn't believe her. So she went to a nearby phone booth and called the police. When the police arrived and she gave her story, they went to see if Gary was still where she had left him. Sure enough, there he was. And when they forced him out of the car, Josefina yelled out, Yeah, that's him. That's him. He raped me and killed those two other girls and he had me eating their bones. He cut up this girl and put her in a pot and made us eat her. He was arrested and the police rushed to his home where, half naked and emaciated, the girls screamed out in relief as they were saved. 
As police checked his home and his freezer, they realized everything Josefina said was correct. Also arrested around the same time as Gary was Sandy's friend, Tony, real name Cyril Brown, who was then released on a $50,000 bail and agreement to testify against Gary Heidnick. He claimed he was there the day that Sandy was killed and helped Gary to dismember her. Shortly after his arrest, Gary attempted to take his own life. He survived and his trial proceeded. At his arraignment, Gary attempted to convince the court that the girls were already in the house when he moved in. And at the trial, his attorney, Charles Peruto Jr., tried to prove that his client was legally insane. Both arguments were denied, and the insanity defense was rebutted almost solely by the fact that he was able to successfully run and brokerage his church's hefty bank account, proving he was a, quote, astute investor who knew exactly what he was doing. As gruesome details continued to be revealed during the trial, the jury seemed to have no issue convicting the dangerous man. Found guilty on two first-degree murder charges on July 1st, 1988, Gary Heidnick was sentenced to death and sent to the State Correctional Institution of Pittsburgh. Almost 10 years later, his daughter Maxine White and ex-wife Betty Heidnick filed a suit in the federal court to seek a stay of execution on the basis that Gary was not competent to be executed. After two years of legal fights on July 3rd, 1999, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania issued a final ruling and allowed the execution to go forward. His life was ended by lethal injection on July 6, 1991, and as of 2020, was the last person to be executed by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. His lawyer said that, even in the better end, Gary insisted he was innocent but claimed he wanted to be executed so that the state, by killing an innocent man, may end the death penalty once and for all. If Gary's story sounds familiar to you at all, he served as one of the six real-life murderers whom author Thomas Harris based Buffalo Bill off of in his 1988 novel, The Silence of the Lambs. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on November 27th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.